Many people say they know Jesus, but all too often they know about him, but they don't truly know him. For this reason, Dr. David Jeremiah wrote The Jesus You May Not Know, which provides insight about his eternal nature and role on earth and in heaven. This book is yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point. And for donations of $75 or more, you'll receive the book, He Is Bookmark, Study Guide, and CD or DVD album. Go to davidjeremiah.ca. Have you ever felt that you ruined your life so badly that God couldn't possibly restore you? If so, then you can sympathize with King David. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah explains how God provided King David with a path to restoration, even when sin had left him utterly hopeless. And God can do the same for you. To introduce today's message, The Scar Tissue of Sin, here's David. And thank you so much for joining us today for the Friday edition of Turning Point. We are very excited to have you along with us. Could I just put two Psalms in your mind before we go any further? Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Those two Psalms are really important for you to read if you happen to be involved in anything like that which was enveloping David's life. We'll talk more about it, but Psalm 51, Psalm 32. Be sure to read those Psalms if you have time today. We're going to talk about what happened after the events of David and Bathsheba and how it affected David going forward in spite of God's forgiveness. There's sometimes forgiveness and there's still a penalty. There's forgiveness and there's scar tissue. And that's the lesson we're talking about today and Monday, the scar tissue of sin. We'll get to it in a moment. First, let me remind you again that we're going to Israel. Yes, we are. March of 2024. The 12th through the 22nd, this extended tour of Israel will take us to Jerusalem, to Galilee. It will take us to the Dead Sea, to the Jordan River, to Masada, to all of the great places in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. You'll travel on a beautiful luxury coach. Uh, Meals uh, will be provided in the morning and in lunchtime. Uh, We'll gather many times together in big groups for great meetings, and then you'll have your little bus family that you work with. Each bus has its own tour guide from Israel and its own bus captains from the Turning Point Ministry. And uh, it it just becomes a family, and you make such good friends, and you see things together. And, uh, well, we want you to come. I hope you will. I'm excited to be there to teach and lead. But we can't do it without you. So while there's still time and still rooms, make your reservation to go with us to Israel in 2024, March the 12th through the 22nd. Here's part one of the scar tissue of sin. If you have a copy of the scripture, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we are going to discuss today the scar tissue of sin. We are working our way through the life of David. We studied the 11th chapter, which conveys the details of David's sin with Bathsheba and his subsequent murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and his attempt to cover all of that up. We come now to the 12th chapter, and I need to report that almost... 
One whole year has passed since the sordid events of chapter 11 have transpired. The mourning for Uriah was briefly observed by Bathsheba, but the record is clear. As quickly as she could, she moved in with King David and they were officially wed. It is quite probable that the 12 months that passed between David's secret sin and its final public manifestation were months that passed in silence. David knew what had happened. Obviously, Bathsheba knew. Joab, who was David's general, had been implicated in the plot because David had instructed him to push Uriah to the front of the battle so that he would be killed. So Joab knew. But as far as we can determine, the rest of the people of Israel had not heard of David's secret sin. Oh yes, the Bible says there was one other who knew. In the last verse of the 11th chapter, the last phrase, we are told that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Psalm 50:21 says, These things hast thou done, and kept silence, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. As we follow David from his sin to his ultimate restoration, there are five steps upon which he must walk. First of all, he moves through a period of conviction, followed by the confrontation, followed by the confession, followed by the cleansing, and then followed by the consequences. In order for us to fully comprehend this whole story, we must study not only what the history book says, but we must also study the words that David wrote during this period of his life. So we will be looking at 2 Samuel 12, and at the same time briefly examining some passages in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. As we follow this man after God's heart from the dark day of his rebellion to the bright day of his restoration. Notice, first of all, David's conviction. The history books do not describe David's heart condition during the year that took place between his sin and his being found out. But Psalm 32 tells us what was going on in David's life. And if you will hold your place in 2 Samuel 12 and turn over to the 32nd Psalm, you will get some insight into David's thought process during that year. Now the 51st Psalm was undoubtedly written before the 32nd. But Psalm 32 is David's writing as he looks back on this whole episode in his life. We do not have time to do an exposition of the 32nd Psalm, so let me just point out two things about David during the 12 months when nobody knew but that little circle of people who were involved. The first thing we discover is that it was a year of silence. In Psalm 32 and verse 3 we read, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Most scholars believe that the silence that is mentioned here has not only to do with the fact that David did not talk about what he had done with anyone outside of the circle of knowledge, but that he also had not talked to God about it. You see, 
Though he was very troubled about his deeds, he would not speak to God about those deeds. He had not confessed his sin. And therefore, since he would not speak to God about his sin, he could not speak to God about anything. For David is the one who had written, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So through that whole 12 months, when he was hiding his sin, David had no fellowship with God. And no wonder he prayed in Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. David had been separated in his fellowship from God. It was a year of silence. Men and women, it is also quite evident as you read the 32nd Psalm that it was a year of suffering. Listen to his terms as he describes even the physical suffering that he went through as he tried to deal inwardly with what he had done and was not willing to come to grips with it in the way that God had prescribed in his word. He speaks in the third verse of his bones roaring all the day long. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. David was silent outwardly, but inwardly he was screaming. Read on into the next verse, and you will discover that David was filled with sorrow. He speaks of his transgressions. He speaks of, his, of the Lord's hand being heavy upon him, of his moisture being turned into the draught of summer. You see, David discovered that even a palace was no place of relief when one is filled with bitter remorse. While a king may command his subjects, he has no power to command his own conscience when he has done wrong. David said that his life was as though some heated iron was scorching him and all the dew and freshness of his life was dried up. Somebody has written that nobody buys a little passing pleasure in evil at so dear a rate or keeps it for so short a time as a good man. The conscience of the righteous soon reasserts itself and makes its disconcerting voice heard. He may be far from true repentance, but he will soon experience keen remorse. Months may pass before he enjoys communion with God, but self-disgust will quickly fill his soul. And that's what went on in David's heart during that 12-month period of time. He would not deal with the sin, but it would not go away either. It is interesting to observe that there are two properties about David's sin that are here dealt with. First of all, his sin was premeditated. Oh, not perhaps the sin with Bathsheba. He set himself up for that by not going to war with the rest of the troops and by taking the leisurely walk on the palace roof that night. And then by allowing his mind to be filled with the thought of sexual involvement with another man's wife, we perhaps might give some excuse to David that that was a sin of passion. But what he did concerning Uriah was thought out, premeditated, planned ahead of time, carefully calculated. It was a sin of the mind and of the will as well as of the passion. And isn't it interesting that this premeditated sin now is allowed a whole year's time to simmer in the heart of this righteous man so that God at exactly the right moment can deal with it. The other property of David's sin is this. It was not only premeditated, it was private. And if you have your Bibles still checked at the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel, you will look at the 12th verse and discover 
that Nathan the prophet says to David, Thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun, which is a Hebrew idiom that means before the whole world. I said, David, you did this in private, but because you're a leader and a king, what you did in private is now going to be known all over the world and even to this generation. So David is under conviction. And as the months pass, while David is being prepared inwardly for the moment of truth, God has already set up his plan to confront David. And we're back now in the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel, and we will look together at the confrontation. The Bible says in verse 1 of the 12th chapter that the Lord sent Nathan unto David. That's interesting because when you see what David did and how he sinned and the heinous nature of what he did in sin, you would think that the scripture would read that after David had sinned and Uriah had died and Bathsheba had come to live with him and the child is born, that if David is going to be confronted, that maybe the Lord would say that he sent an army against David's army to defeat him or he sent a pestilence into his house to discourage him or he sent sickness into his life to defeat him. But the Bible says that God sent Nathan. Nathan the prophet, Nathan the preacher. Nathan had been with David once before, you'll remember. God sent Nathan once before to comfort and confirm David when he had the dream about building the temple. Do you remember that? And Nathan was the one who affirmed the dream and said, whatever's in your heart, you do it. And then Nathan came back and explained God's message to David. But this time when Nathan comes to see David, it is not for encouragement or confirmation. It is for confrontation. I can't help but wonder what went through the mind of this prophet when God said, you go confront the king. Now to confront a brother takes enough courage, but to confront somebody over you, to confront the king of all Israel, that takes courage. But Nathan was a prophet of the Lord and he was a man of integrity and so he comes to David now to confront him concerning his sin. Now the interesting thing is that he didn't walk right into the presence of David and say, David, I know what you did and you're going to pay for it. But he told him a parable. He told him a story. Well, Nathan is about to paint a picture for David. We read of it in the first four verses. And Nathan said unto David, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man. He took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come unto him. Now, Nathan told a story, and it's not hard for us to identify the players in the story. The rich man with the flocks and the possessions is David. The poor man who has nothing is Uriah. The little lamb is Bathsheba. The traveler is the moment thought of lust that came to David's mind. And to satisfy his lust, he had to make a choice whether to take the little ewe lamb that belonged to his neighbor. And the story says that... When the traveler came, the rich man took his neighbor's little lamb. And you know, the story is very plain to us now that we have the interpretation, but David did not have a clue. He was totally insensitive to what was behind the parable. In fact, when he heard the story, it incensed him. 
He thought Nathan had come to report some injustice that had taken place in the kingdom. Whoever had done this thing was going to pay. David was righteously indignant, and the scripture says that he was very angry. Verse 5. David's anger was kindled greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, David's really hard on this person. Little did he know he was pronouncing his own judgment. David said, whoever did this, he's going to die. And before he dies, he's going to restore the lamb fourfold. I read this week a very interesting statement that may explain some things that perhaps numbers of us wonder about. Listen carefully. What a strange thing the heart of a believer is. It is often filled with righteous indignation against the sins of others while it is blind to its own. Just in proportion as a man is in love with his own sins and resentful of being rebuked, he will be unduly severe in condemning those of his neighbor. End of quote. Isn't it interesting that we often are the angriest about the sin in the lives of others that is that which we must struggle with in our own lives? Now in the seventh verse we read, Nathan said unto David, here's the moment of confrontation, thou art the man. I don't know what that must have been like, but I have a picture of it in my mind. I've taken a mental picture of that moment, and what I see is when Nathan takes his bony finger and sticks it in David's nose, he says, thou art the man. And David looks at him for a moment, and then his mouth drops open. And suddenly, that whole story that he has just heard clicks into sync. And David understands exactly, and he cannot help but wonder, how did he know? Confrontation. A moment of truth. See, God had been preparing David all these 12 months. He'd been banging away at this man's heart. And I can't help but wonder if when the word was finally out and when Nathan finally pointed his finger at David and said, Thou art the man, that David not only dropped his mouth, but almost sighed a sigh of relief. It is finally over. At last, it's out. It's done. And there follows, thirdly, the confession. After the conviction and the confrontation comes the confession. In verse 13 of the 12th chapter we read, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It took him 12 months to get those words out of his mouth. I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, now if you'll hold your place in 2 Samuel 12, turn back with me to the Psalms and let me take you to Psalm 51 and show you the prayer that David actually prayed at this very moment in his life. Because of the superscription of the Psalms, we are able to discover exactly where some Psalms fit into the historical narrative. And the superscription over Psalm 51 is very clear. If you have your Bibles open to that passage, notice what it says. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. 
Now that's very clear that this psalm is what David wrote after he had been confronted by Nathan. It's interesting that for almost 12 months, David's harp had been silent. No songs had been written. No music had been played. But in the moment of his confession, once again, he picks up the harp and he composes a song, even if it is in the minor key. And what I'd like to point out to you, since we can't do an exposition of the entire 51st Psalm, what I want to point out to you is that David really has come to grips with what he has done. Here in this psalm, there is an intensity of words multiplied by David in his prayer, describing the nature of what he perceives has happened in his own life. David truly does confess. Now, you know, the Bible teaches us that confession... Uh, the New Testament Greek word for it is the word amo lageo, which means to say lageo, amo, the same thing. When we confess our sin, what do we do? We say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. We do not try to cover it up. We do not candy coat it. We do not try to make ourselves look better in our sin than we have a right to. But we look at it and we look at it through the righteous, holy eyes of an almighty God. And we say, okay, I see it for what it is. It is sin. Now in Psalm 51, David uses in his prayer several different words to describe what he did. I want you to notice in verse 1, for instance... He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to the loving kindness, according unto the multitudes of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. The word transgressions is a word which speaks of rebellion in one's heart. Notice in the second verse, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. The word iniquity speaks of perversion or distortion, of acting unjustly or dealing crookedly with life. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There's the third word. And the word sin is a word which means to miss the mark, to fall short of the standard, to not live up to what God has prescribed for our lives. Uh, we have all gone astray. Every one of us has gone our own way. There is none righteous, no, not one. We do not hit God's mark. We sin. And the fourth word is the word evil. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And the word evil is a word which means a vile thing which deserves condemnation. Now please note, in using these terms, David is literally giving to us the key to genuine confession. Uh, we deal here in our college and in our schools with rules and with the violation of rules and it is quite often the case that when someone is caught in that which they ought not to do there is genuine sorrow not because of the sin but because of having been caught and one of the roles of a counselor is to try to determine whether there's genuine repentance or just a feeling that if they had been more careful they would not have gotten caught when we see David's confession, the first question we have to ask is this. If it took 12 months for God to get through to him, now he's been confronted. Is David simply doing what is normal and natural for a man in a public place to do because he's been caught? Or does he genuinely have sorrow and repentance for his sin? And it is quite evident that David has confessed. For he calls sin what it is. Do you realize how hard it is to come to that place in any of our lives? 
Do you realize how hard it is to come to the place where you stand before God and say, it's me, oh Lord, me. It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me. I did it. Nobody made me do it. I did it of my own volition. I am guilty and I have done it, Lord. I am responsible. It is hard to say I am guilty, isn't it? But David did it. And that's why when we read of his confession and we understand the nature of it from Psalm 51, we can now look at his cleansing. Well, you know, we have to put a period in this lesson. Uh, This often happens to us, and you might think we do it on purpose, but we don't. Uh, It just is the way it works out. But uh, we're going to have to take the weekend now, and we'll come back to part two of the scar tissue of sin on Monday. Don't forget this weekend to look for us on television. And uh, we also have a weekend radio broadcast in many of the areas where you live. We'll be there for you on the weekend, but it's not ever meant to keep you from going to church. You know that that's a high priority for me. Get to your church, support your church, be faithful to your church, help your pastor, get involved in ministry, build up other people. The church is God's best idea. He he wants you to be there to help others and be helped by others. So I encourage you to make church your priority this weekend. You can find us along the way. You can DVR us. You can do what you have to do, and we can still be a part of it, but you need to be in a church. I hope you're listening. Be sure to be here on Monday. Have a great weekend. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, The Tender Warrior, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of The God Shot, a devotional focused on God's character by teacher and podcast host Tara Lee Cobble. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in a variety of attractive cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue the series, The Tender Warrior, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. All we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. A baby boy lay desperately ill in the early 1860s. His widowed mother walked five miles through the rain to find a doctor 
who almost refused to go. He wouldn't be paid, and if the child survived, he would likely become a poor laborer. But the doctor went anyway and saved the life of David Lloyd George, future Prime Minister of England. Obedience, not debate, is our task. We never know what outcome God may bring from a small word or act of obedience in service to others. If it is in your power to do good today, then do it and leave the results to God. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover how God blesses obedience on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.